Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today my guest is Louis Fishman. Louis is Associate Professor at City University of New York, Brooklyn College, and is the author of Jews and Palestinians in the Late Ottoman Era, published by Edinburgh University Press, and made available recently as a paperback edition. Louis is also a Twitterati, as his account at Istanbul Tel Aviv is one of the most important accounts in order to understand Turkish-Israeli-Palestinian relations. Louis, welcome. Hey there, how are you doing? Thanks for having me. Louis, the first question is the same question to all of my guests. Louis, what is your Jerusalem? In other words, what is your connection with the city? Well, you know, that's 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 a huge question. I think I'm uh, for for most of my life. I I, I moved to uh, Israel when I was young, and uh, Jerusalem. I always uh, kept some distance away from it. Actually, um, I'm much more of someone that was you know in Tel Aviv during the years I was there, and then uh, of course um, raising uh, my daughter there. Um, we weren't we weren't in Jerusalem. But and and for years now, you know, after I after I ended up, um, I'm not receiving work in Israel, not staying there. I ended up in Turkey for a great number of years. I was I did my grad school also in Chicago. So as you know, I've been I've been all over. But every trip I go, in, you know, to the land, I go to Jerusalem and I walk the streets. Often um, these were beautiful walks um, that took place alone when I was younger, much younger, um, with friends. Um, and then 
uh, with my daughter as a, a young girl, uh, I would take her uh, every time. And for me, there's really uh, no borders. But like, I don't think like, uh, you know, most uh, Israelis don't venture past, you know, the the invisible borders uh, where you where you reach uh, Palestinian uh, Jerusalem. Um, and of course, uh, you know, walking both sides uh, and, and bringing, I think, a child there also was was a, a very important uh, part of her life and my life as a father. So I think that would be, I think that the personal would be uh, most important. In fact, uh, years later, now, um, now that she's in school in the city, she's grown up, um, it's really, that's when my connection has really become stronger because um, on my, you know, I travel frequently, as you know, um, and often now in the last uh, three years, because my daughter is actually based there, uh, I stay there for, you know, five, six nights uh, a week at a time, which I never did. I usually come in the morning and leave in the evenings. And I, I really learned to to love Jerusalem and 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 not as a not not as a, a museum or as as a place I write about, but but just as a city. So yes, I, I really I I really in the last couple of years I've I've just fallen in love with the city again. But it's it's a very it's a very different way of loving it. Um, having said that, of course, I, I write about I write about Jerusalem, um, and I'm often jealous of people like you, Roberto, that um, know every uh, nook and cranny in the city. Um, and hopefully in the next uh, couple of years, uh, I'm also going to be able to discover uh, much more. Um, just for example, I'll tell you a, you know, I, I finished um, uh, my degree at Chicago and, and my professor was Rashid Khaladi, but I had never been at the Khaladi library, for example. Um, and last last trip I was there, I, I knocked on the door and went in. So there's, I really hope to to develop my research um, some more articles, um, more looking more about the Ottoman past, but you know, from from actually going there and, and being there. So at the same time as I write it, so I think it could have a different a different outcome. I must say that the Khalidi Library is one of the targets of uh, of the podcast. Uh, I've been in touch with them because I think it's a fascinating place, often neglected. And uh, it's, it's not just a library collecting the history of Jerusalem and of the people of Jerusalem, but it's a fascinating place on its own. Louis, yeah. I want to ask you something. You, yeah. you worked, I, I, as you mentioned, on Jews and Palestinians in the late Ottoman era. Many guests in the past talked about what you just mentioned, these invisible borders in the city, which people cross, sometimes aware of crossing the border, those borders, sometimes they're not aware. They're just crossing the borders. Suddenly, when we look at the late Ottoman era, those borders were not there. So I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about uh, Jerusalem in the late Ottoman periods, particularly the relationship between communities, Jews and Arabs. Yeah, absolutely. I'll just, I'll just, I'll just add quickly that it suddenly came back into my memory that in I, I finished at Haifa University and I wrote my uh, BA final paper, one of my final papers on Jerusalem uh, under two occupations, under Jordanian um, uh, and Israeli occupation. 
So I was actually quite a bit, quite a bit in Jerusalem in the 1990s. So you know, seeing the disappearing of these borders, right, the Israelification of Palestinian Jerusalem, I think also is very interesting. And if we bring it back to the Ottoman period and the pre-48 period, is that we didn't have an East and West Jerusalem. There were Jews that lived on the east side, and there were, were Palestinians that lived on the west side. There was no, there was no, you know, these borders, the borders as we know them today uh, didn't exist. I think when you go back to the Ottoman period, um, you know, you have the, the, the great article um, on the, the tramway that the Ottomans were trying to build in Jerusalem. Um, this is in, um, in the, remind me of the series that um, this, this article, the Yasmin um, from, she's a, a, a Turkish scholar. I believe she wrote about the about the tramway, but let's even let me get back to you. I, I guess we have to edit this part out. Sorry about that. Um, so the the tramway, the idea of the tramway in the Ottoman period was that it's going to connect the different communities, and that tramway took a hundred years finally to happen. Um, and we see that in a very very uh, different context. So when you go back to the Ottoman period, I mean, what I think is that we still know so very little about the Ottoman period. We know we, we have some great work about, in, including your work on Jerusalem and, you know, quite, there's so many different scholars working on this period, but we know a great, we have a great amount of information about neighborhood relations between Jews and Arabs and uh, um, how people were living together. And that wasn't just Jerusalem, that was also in Haifa and that was also, you know, in, 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 in Yaffa. So I think that is in itself, um, you know, speaks volumes. And my, my book would argue, though, that these, these relations weren't strong, weren't in the, in the end, it was the political relations already in the late Ottoman period that started to divide these, these two communities. Um, but I don't think that was geographically speaking. And I think, that, I, I think I'm going to stress that, that when, when I talk about the divisions of political communities during the late Ottoman period, they're still interacting on a daily basis. These borders are not there. Of course, there's the border between the old city and the new city, and the dynamics of the dynamics of of, of that also. So, you know, when I when I talk about the army, when it, you know drafting to the armies and, and the Jews and Christians having to go to the army for the first time, it was only later on I learned that Muslims in the old city, because it was a holy city, um, the Muslim children weren't drafted off into the Ottoman army also. So I think that, that I think there's, there's a lot of things that we, we can uncover and we can start to understand about um, Jerusalem, the, the, the city, that, that in some senses is, you know, the, the, almost the backwaters of, of the Ottoman land. But Jerusalem was always special, um, both to the Ottoman administration, was special to Ottoman Jews, very much so. And there was a, of course, sense of, local Palestinian pride among Arabs. And the meaning for Jerusalem's for each of these communities um, was similar in a way that they all thought of it as the Holy Land. But on the other hand, they all had very special connections to the city as well. The next question is really connected to, to what you just said. I, I was curious about the position of Jerusalem in the Ottoman Empire. For probably centuries, certainly for decades at the beginning of the 20th century, the sense was that Jerusalem was this peripheral city 
neglected by the Ottomans, uh, which eventually became a site for tourists from the Western world, from America, from Europe, but still was like neglected. But your book, your work, and the works uh, of other scholars, Salim Tamari, uh, Issam Nassar, Avigai, Jacobson, and so forth, they all make a different argument. Well, Jerusalem was not so peripheral. Can you tell us how it was not peripheral? Yeah, I think in the, the modern era and by the late 19th century, with the centralization of, of the empire, I mean, the post-Tanzimat era, where the, 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 the Ottoman state, you know, they never referred, referred themselves as, as empire, but as, as the, you know, Devleti Osmani, the, the Ottoman state. And the Ottoman state actually transforms into a very modern state system. And in that sense, Jerusalem, because of, I think, also the, the international interest um, and other reasons, but Jerusalem becomes much closer to Istanbul. And just recently, um, I was speaking with uh, a friend in, in, in Jerusalem whose family goes back uh, centuries and, and a Palestinian friend. And he's, we were talking about the Ottomans and I said, you know what? In somehow, Istanbul, Jerusalem was like a suburb of Istanbul. And I'm trying to figure that out in my future work. Why was it so connected to Istanbul? I think much more than other cities. And it wasn't just the, the holy connection. This is what interests me. Now, we know it's an independent governance there. I mean, there's, we can explain this politically. We can explain this historically. But I, I think we need to dig deeper and to see that, yes, East, you know, Jerusalem was almost like a suburb of Istanbul. And you see it in the numerous um, correspondence between the two cities, you know, the, the, the special role the governor plays there. And the idea that the Ottoman state was, towards the end, what was connecting all these different communities, communities together. In the end, it also led to their divisions, I argue. But, we, but, but first and foremost, everyone was connected together through this Ottoman system. And that includes the international communities there. I think the, the Ottomans, as they're placing their hold over Jerusalem, we, it transformed into this um, a new political geographical region where the Ottomans are the main government there. And, and their presence is very, very visible on all walks of life. So if your children are being drafted to the army, you know, you have, um, you know, represent, representatives of the local administration will come. Representatives come to Petak Tikva to check out the new Jewish yeshuv, the Jewish uh, settlement there. Um, they visit, a, you know, with the local um, Ottoman parliamentarians, the Palestinian parliamentarians, Ruhi al-Khaladi and Inside al Husseini. So we do have something very different. Um, and it, it, is a, it is very, very close and connected, very connected to, to Istanbul, I would say. Famous Turkish journalist uh, Fali Rifki Atay, who during World War I was the personal assistant of uh, Jamal Pasha, the Ottoman governor of Syria and Palestine, wrote a book, a memoir. Quite interestingly, he wrote it in French and in, in, and in Turkish. And the book is called uh, The Mount of Olives. 
where actually the office of Jamal Pasha was located during the war. And the whole argument of his memoirs is that there was never a Turkish Jerusalem. He talks about there is an Arab Jerusalem, there is a European Jerusalem, there is a Christian Muslim uh, in you know, Jewish Jerusalem, but there was never a Turkish Jerusalem. Do you think he was right in his assessment? That, that's a fantastic question, but I, but I think what I described before is makes it an inherently Ottoman Jerusalem. And you know when, when we, you know often when we're, we're, we're talking about how do we describe you know, you know I, I'm working on a new paper on Ottoman anti-Semitism and I said, well, what is Ottoman anti-Semitism when what is Ottoman? That's the question, right? Because you had uh, different types of anti-Semitism during this period. So whether it's if it's in Bulgaria or whether it's in, uh, you know, uh, Egypt, right? Uh, they're all part of, uh, sim you know, similarly uh, connected to the Ottoman state. So what, how do you define that, right? So I think if we look at that, it'd be very hard to say there is a Turkish Jerusalem. But the Ottoman presence, the Ottoman past is very, very much there, right? Well, whether that's Turkish, you know, and, and you know, when, when he's writing his, when he's writing the book, you know, the Mount, Mount of Olives, Zeytin Da. He, he's writing it at a very interesting moment where you, you really have, you know, others placing claim over the land. Um, and actually, you know, the worries that uh, European imperialism is actually going to take over, over Palestine. So suddenly you have very visible Hebrew Jewish community there. That's what I argue place claim of the homeland. And you, you have a Palestinian community that's placing claim of the homeland also put aside the, the, the European powers. So I think when you would go there and say, well, what is, you know, is there a, a Turkish uh, Jerusalem? Well, most definitely there's a Ottoman Jerusalem and you can't separate that from, from its, its Turkishness in that sense. So I would, I would argue, yes, you know, maybe, you know, as he was there riding during that period, he might not have seen this or might have been very influenced by uh, Turkish nationalism, right? And this, you know, towards the, the end of the empire, we do know that there's a rise in Turkish nationalism and um, the need for them to put their stamp, you know, the, on the different areas within the empire. Uh, but if, you know, what's amazing is that, you know, over a hundred years later, um, you, you just scratch the surface and, and the Ottoman past is very, very visible there everywhere. Um, um, whether it's the walls, whether it's, you know, you know, you go back to the newspapers, which both of us do, and you read HaKhirut or you read Palestine or Quds sharif the Ottoman presence is everywhere there. The Ottoman stamp was there and it was an integral part of the everyday lives of everyone. A few years back, I was invited to a conference in Istanbul. I must say that uh, I wasn't sure whether uh, to go or not, but then I decided to go. The conference was uh, state-sponsored. In fact, it was open also by the, dep the, the deputy prime minister. And the conference was uh, just named Al-Qudus, so the, the Turkish name for, for Jerusalem. The whole point of the conference was somehow to reestablish a connection between modern-day Turkey, so the Turkish Republic, and Jerusalem. 
in the past few years, walking around uh, Jerusalem, particularly East Jerusalem, you get a sense of a growing stronger presence of Turkish people, individuals. You sit around the coffee shop and all of a sudden you pick up people speaking Turkish. You're an expert of relationship between Turkey and Israel and Palestine. Can you give us a sense of uh, what's happening here? What, what is uh, this new trend? Is like looking back at the past, uh, reestablishing new connections. Can you just give us a sense of uh, what's really going on here? Yeah, I, I think, you know, um, as, as for the people that don't know, I've lived off and on in Turkey for, for 20 years. I have a house there. Um, like I visit Jerusalem, every time I visit Jerusalem, either five days before that I'm in Istanbul or either five days after that I'm in Istanbul. So I go between the cities uh, quite a bit. And, you know, I have been in Turkey during the years of the, of the rise of the, the AKP power, uh, AKP party and the rise of uh, Erdogan from prime minister to presidency to uh, really have an, uh, a, a very, very huge stamp, if we talk about stamps, on everyday life uh, in Turkey. Uh, what I can say is this, is that if we, if we even go in the pre-Erdogan uh, era, um, Turkish people have a special love for Jerusalem that is both historically based, I would say. Um, I think they also, you know, it's historically based in the sense that, you know, Britain uh, occupied Palestine while it was an integral part of the empire. So it's, it's very different than, you know, um, I would say that other areas that were lost in the empire over time or in the different wars. I mean, it's very fresh in the memory. Now, the Palestinian cause is very dear to Turkish people, whether that's you're on the left, right, the far left, remember the, the far, the, the radical left in Turkey, um, you know, the, their Sheikh Gwar Deniz Gezmish, for example, um, had a, a, a PFLP ID card also, and 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 often they trained together um, with the PLO during 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 the, the early 70s. You know, this was world revolution. So the the, the Turkish left really has some a strong ties uh, to the the Palestinian cause movement. On the on the on the same token, a, the Islamist movement has always been very, very close to, uh, you know, the Palestinian issue and, and, and to Jerusalem. Now, over the last 20 years, there really has been a government that has taken this, you know, upon themselves, upon themselves to defend Jerusalem at uh, every moment. And I think what's interesting here is that Erdogan's relations with Israel you know, this is not, there's no lost love between Israel and Turkey and between Netanyahu and Erdogan over the last, you know, uh, I can't believe Erdogan, uh, Netanyahu also has been in Erdogan's 20 years almost uh, in power and, and Netanyahu is like 12 years uh, leading uh, leading the, the the government. So there's no lost love between, between the two leaders. Uh, Erdogan has always staunchly recognized the right of Israel to exist. Um, but on the other hand, has played this game where they're still going to be the ones that are defending Palestine. Now, let's fast forward in the last three years. We have the, the Arab Spring. We have Mercy. We have the fall of Mercy. 
and the and and really I would say the um, the moment where we see that ironically, despite the strong relations with Israel in terms of trade, despite the tensions in terms of politics, Erdogan has managed to make it a very, very important niche uh, in Jerusalem um, and in, in Gaza. And, uh, and I think the Palestinian people uh, have seen this, uh, including, you know, Palestinians that would um, might not necessarily find themselves in the, in the camp uh, of Erdogan himself. So, I mean, it's, it's very recognizable that, they, um, that Turkey is um, a major player in uh, daily politics uh, in Jerusalem. Having said that, we have to remember that this is all contingent on its relations with Israel. So Israel also um, pushes back and, 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 you know, reminds Turkey that they can only have this status as long as Israel allows them to have this status, if that makes sense. And I think, I think that politically that's important. So let me, let me end by saying that despite the politics and despite the, I think often you can argue that it's correct uh, that Erdogan uses the Palestinians to gain some prestige in the Islamic world and in, in the Arab world, and and um, some kind of power to use, um, you know, domestically, you know, around elections, people say, oh, once again, you know, Erdogan's talking about uh, Jerusalem, right? So yes, this is used politically. There's no doubt about it that uh, the Palestinian cause in Jerusalem is used to no end politically. But putting all that aside. I come back to that point that there is a special connection um, between Turkey and the, and, and, and the Palestinians and Jerusalem. And remember that Jerusalem was always, if we go back historically, you know, we, we talk about this idea of Jerusalem being the third holiest city um, in Islam. When I teach, I stress to my students, it's not the third holiest city, it's a holy city. And I think we, you know, you can't, something's not more holy than, you understand what I'm saying? It's not that Mecca is more holy than Jerusalem. No, they're both holy. And, and of course, we know, we know that one you have to make pilgrimage to, according to Islam. But that doesn't, for Pal bring this back to Palestinians, right? Bring this back to Palestinians. They see themselves as the pr pr protectorate of Jerusalem. In that sense, historically speaking, the Ottomans also saw themselves as protecting Jerusalem. Now, that didn't always have to remember that when we're talking about politics today and memory, that doesn't always have to stand in sync with what history actually was. Because the, the idea is that people construct histories and they construct narratives. So today, Jerusalem might be even more important in that sense, in the hearts of, of some Turkish people than it was a hundred years ago, because most of people, most people in Turkey also, you know, much, much of their history, like all histories, whether it's the, the, the Jewish narrative, Palestinian narrative, or the Turkish narrative, have cleansed greatly the Ottoman past um, from that narrative. Um, so I, I, I'm not sure if they understand why that love is there or where that love is there. That's important. On the other hand, unfortunately in Turkey, this very pro-Palestinian stance um, at times 
takes a very um, a vivid, a vile anti-Semitic uh, stance within it. Meaning, uh, you really, it's a very visible anti-Semitism you see within sometimes some of the pro-Palestinian camps. And this could usually the Islamist groups and, and the, the, the pro-government groups. Uh, and also you see it uh, a bit on the left also. So I think the most exciting thing in, in Turkey to see about this over the last 10 years are a lot of civil groups speaking, uh, speaking against anti-Semitism and calling out the anti-Semitism and saying, wait a minute, this is not being pro-Palestine. Palestine. This is anti-Semitism and we need to call it out. So I think, I think that's a, a very important uh, development because they get, they get you know, mixed completely, completely together. I'll give you the last example. The Akit newspaper, which is a, a very pro-government newspaper, Islamist paper, it's not mainstream, I wouldn't call it mainstream, but in you know, 2014, um, when, when, when tensions were high between you know, Palestinians and Israelis, um, they did a crossword pu puzzle and they put Hitler's face in it, right? You had to fill in that crossword puzzle, but it had Hitler's face in this. Stuff like this, and we, we, we give many other examples, is, is not helpful to the Pal Palestinian cause. And um, unfortunately, they exist. But a, to end, um, there is a genuine love for Palestine, and that, that's expressed in different ways at, at different times um, by people in Turkey. Well, first of all, let me say thank you, because uh, this is a great overview. In, in, I say normally people think about Israel and Palestine in terms of uh, internal relations. Then, of course, we look at America, Europe. Recently, we look at the uh, Gulf countries. But we tend to forget that also Turkey is a regional player and it is an important one. So I think this is important uh, uh, to remember that we need to add the Turkish component when we look at the city of Jerusalem. And I think it's important also to highlight this long-term connection that might have been lost somehow, but it's still there. I mean, the Ottoman Empire disappeared only 100 years ago. And, and again, people are still referring to that period uh, in time, even though historians, for their own reason, may have neglected it for a long time, but that doesn't mean it disappeared from the city. So I want to go back to history. In your book, but also earlier on in your career, you've wrote about uh, an incident, which given the current uh, political situation in Jerusalem, I think is very important to remember. So in 1911, there is uh, an incident occurring at the Aram al-Sharif. Can you bring us back to that period in time and tell us about uh, that incident? What happened? What were the consequences of it? Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We're going to take a short break. Thank you for listening. And remember to join our Facebook page, Twitter, and Instagram account. If you have a story about Jerusalem that you want to share, or someone that you want me to interview, please get in touch. Enjoy the rest of the show. Yeah, I, I, it's it's really interesting that um, there's two or three books that will be coming out uh, on the 1911 incident, Haram al-Sharif incident. They're looking from a different angle. But let me just tell you uh, what it is in a nutshell. Um, in 1911, after three years of, of digging, there was an English exploratory team that came to Palestine to search for treasures. And the head of it was a man named Captain Parker. And Captain Parker really believed that the treasures of Solomon existed under the Temple Mount, which is the Haram al-Sharif. So they got permits from the Ottomans. They had a st- they sold stocks to collect money. And there was supposed to be this, according to Ruhi al-Khaladi, the, the, the Palestinian parliamentarian in, in um, Istanbul, the treasures were, were worth 100 million, you know, uh, sterlings, right, British uh, there is sterling, so uh, pounds, excuse me, pounds. So it was it was supposed to be something huge. So they dig, they dig, they dig, and they're not able to get to the spot under the Temple Mount. Now, what's what's amazing is that the Ottomans signed off on this, and there was contracts. Everything was it was kept complete under complete secrecy. I believe even the governor, for the most part, didn't know what they were searching for. Um, and they, they managed to, you know, uh, work within Silwan among the local community, bring better water supply to the, to the area. They paid out very nice, um, very nice, uh, what do you call it, uh, salaries to people there. But one night they're not able, in April 1911, they're not able to get to the, the treasures. They, they, it's sort of like a, it's sort of a, they're stuck, they can't do it. So they said, wait a minute, if we go within the holy compound and dig straight down under, we will find these treasures. And they actually start digging straight down under. Now, what's happening, this is right when Passover is taking place. So in the Jewish press, later I understood this, there's a lot, there, basically there's no press during that week. Um, the the Most of them, the, the Muslims of the city are on the Nabi Musa pilgrimage, 
Um, so they're outside the cities. And then you also have um, during this period, you have uh, you have uh, Christian um, pilgrims coming in. So it was a perfect time to go and dig. Most of the, the Muslim leadership is not there. The head of the Haram al-Sharif, the head sheikh of the Haram al-Sharif is in cahoots with them also, with the, with the treasure uh, hunters. Um, so what happens is a man walks in late at night and sees them desecrating the Haram al-Sharif. News breaks out right as the pilgrims are returning from Nabi Musa pilgrimage and outrage breaks out in the city among Muslims and Christians that the Ottomans have allowed an English treasure hunt to take place under the most uh, holy site. Before I said there's not holier sites than others, but for them, you know, they see themselves as the protectorates of this. Um, and I think there was complete shock. What ensued was days of chaos, rioting, strikes very much like you see later on and think about it later on when you've seen the different the first intifada and every time there's tension in the in the city is that in later on the 1936 revolt where you could argue also is you see shutters everyone's closing down their shutters closing the stores and there's a general strike and then uh people start rioting and the Ottomans are afraid that they're going to lose Jerusalem for a moment, I would say. It doesn't last very long. And they, they you know, they, they, they want to send in more troops. What, in the, what happens finally is that Captain Parker flees the site, goes to Jaffa where his ship is searched and they find nothing. And, and, and this really is what I call the 1911 Harman Street incident. Years later, I, I, I found the, new, the, the local uh, Palestinian paper in Jerusalem, El Quds al Sharif, and it actually has a high headline where they call it El Haritha Haram al Sharif, the Haram al Sharif incident. So I, I coined it as the modern term for it, but later I found out that they actually called it the Haram al Sharif incident as it was happening, which was really exciting for me to, to find. The newspaper Philistine writes, we don't have the first six months and in July 1911, we cover this incident more than any other incident during this, during, during our first six months of being a newspaper. So what do we have here? First of all, we have, I'll only name one or two points that I think are, are, are key here, is first, how did I come across this? I go to the Ottoman archives, I find a dossier that has almost 150 pages. Now, what was interesting to me was that the only reason I found it was because it, I, I went to the index before it was, now it's online, it's much easier. I went to the index and I see the word Zionism. So I bring it to my, I order it, then bring it to my desk. I see 150 pages. Most dossiers in the Ottoman archives are three, four or five pages. Sometimes we have a, on, on the Fula land cells, um, in, in 1910, we have actually quite a big uh, dossier with peasant uh, uh, petitions, but this is 150 pages, and it has nothing really to do with Zionism. From Gaza, they send a letter, and it included the word Zionism in it. So what, what do we learn from this? Was that Palestinians united over an incident that happened at the Haram al-Sharif 
that has nothing to do with the Palestinian Jewish conflict and later the Palestinian Israeli conflict. And I think we learn a lot from that from that 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 anyone that touches that area, it's it's like fire, right? It can cause a great amount of worries among the local Pal Palestinian population and their urge to have their presence known that they are the protectorates of that holy site. And I think that's the, 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 the most, that's the headline of, of, of the work. The other thing is, as historians is, what I found was, I asked myself, how did we not know about this? And then I came to the conclusion is because it's not related to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And this is where I, where I reach and I finally understand that everything we know about Palestinians is only via the lens of the conflict. In the Ottoman period, Jews only at the most in 1914 made up 15%. So not like Syria, not like Egypt, not like Lebanon, where we, where we talk about Egyptians and we talk about Syrians. We talk about Lebanese, but with, with Palestine, we always step back and say, wait a minute, was there a Palestinian people or was there not a Palestinian people? We put the Palestinian people through the lens of the conflict, really which, which, which our understandings were learned from the 40, the events of 40s, 50s, and 60s. So I say we need to wipe this clean and start to look at Palestinian history that's not necessarily connected with the Jewish community, the Jewish Yeshuv, or with, with Zionism. And I think once we do that, we'll start to finally understand their connection to the land and what makes them a people, or what I, what I call was, we'll, we'll start to learn more about Palestinian, Palestinian I, I, we start to learn more about Palestinianism, you know, the, the essence of being Palestinian, what I call and I think that is uh, something very important. I'll add that our archaeologists all know about the, the Parker dig, and they know about the treasure hunt because there's the Parker tunnels, very famous Parker tunnels. So what, what happens is that archaeologists knew about this treasure hunt. It's written everywhere. But us as historians completely missed it because we are at times over-obsessed, I would say, with the conflict and not putting enough attention on creating a historical narrative of the Palestinian people that stands on its own and is very separate from the, from the conflict. Although, of course, very connected to the conflict as well. I must say that um, one of the purposes of this podcast was really to, and it still is, to take Jerusalem out of the conflict. That doesn't mean to deny there's a conflict, obviously it's there, but really not to necessarily always focus on the conflict or to see the city only through the lenses of the conflict. And, you know, it's refreshing to hear that the scholarship out there that is really trying to move out and to empower people to give their agency without necessarily always thinking about them as part of the conflict, which might be very convenient for some politicians or uh, pundits, you know, always to think about there's a conflict, there's a conflict, there's a conflict. My question is about uh, Zionism, because you talked about it. It's a very important topic. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding, particularly when we think and we look back at Zionism at the beginning of the 20th century. I was wondering, 
what was the understanding of the Ottomans of Zionism? How did they define it? How did they understand this new idea and movement? Yeah, so let's separate the, the pre-1908 period with the, with the post-1908 period. And overall, I think what connects the two periods, first of all, is there's a great amount of confusion what Zionism is. And I think because Zionism, because you can't define Zionism just one way, and if we look, for example, that already in the 1880s, before uh, Theodor Herzl declares, you know, writes the book, The Jewish State, and before he, he activates what we call political Zionism, was there's this modern sense of these Jews re returning to Palestine in the, and it really, it really predates what we call the, the first Aliyah. I really think we need to, uh, maybe the headline here is that we need to rethink this whole period and not break it into what we call the first and second Aliyah, the two major waves of immigration. Because by focusing on the two major waves of immigration, we completely misunderstand what was local Zionism, and I think the more dominant Zionism in Palestine during this period. Because what we see is that already in the 1860s, 1870s, 1850s, you have Jews returning to Palestine, and I made the, uh, I say returning for them historically, you could argue, wait, they were never there to begin with. But spiritually, they see themselves as returning to Palestine. And but it's in a very modern sense. It's not just to go there to pray or to be buried. It's to go and create a new life. Now, we know that this happens as Russian pogroms, um, uh, you know, take off in, in, uh, in the Russian Empire. Um, Jews are leaving in huge numbers. The far majority of them, by far, a million almost, come to the United States. But you, do, you have these small groups of Ashkenazi Jews moving there. At the same time, in the 1860s, you have large groups and small groups, I mean, relatively large groups, from North Africa coming there. That They've almost been completely written out of the history. And they're going to be the, the, really, the, I think, the, the dominant group, you know, uh, in the post-1908 period in creating this local Zionism. So let's let's get back to what the Ottoman perceptions were. So the Ottoman perceptions, A, already in the early 1880s, they see this Jewish migration st starting and or, or growing in numbers, um, and they, they attempt to, to stop it. Um, they know that already in the 1890s, you have uh, both uh, Palestinian intellectuals um, and others talking about the worries that these people are going to come and create the Jewish state there. At the same time, you have Theodor Herzl um, meeting with Sultan Abdul Hamid II, lobbying on behalf of the Zionist movement. And you can go and find his um, the documents um, that Herzl proposed, you know, uh, either purchasing or creating a Jewish autonomous land there in Palestine. Um, with the help of Abdul Hamid II, which the narrative, I think, is, is pretty clear during the pre-1908 period. Jews can move to anywhere in the empire except Palestine. Palestine is not for sale. This is sort of the, the when, you know, I've never found that exact sentence, but that sort of resonates um, throughout the history um, that Abdul Hamid said, Abdul Hamid II said something like this. 
Now, what happens in the in the post-1908 period is really, really interesting because we have the Young Turk revolutions. We have the introduction of freedoms. And during these freedoms, the non-Muslim communities in the empire start trying to set on a path of autonomy by adopting Ottoman modern nationalism. And what does that mean? We're going to be proud Ottoman citizens, but the, be, by being proud Ottoman citizens, we also can develop our own local language, our own languages as uh, receiving a certain niche within that system. So uh, Armenians and Greeks, everyone's renegotiating, what I, what, I, what I call here is renegotiating the Milet system. So the Milet system is basically abolished where, you know, the, the, you know, now we have equality between all the communities. But what really happens is that each community now is um, vying for power vis-a-vis -vis the Muslim secular elite in Istanbul. So during this period, you have what we call, I call local Zionism. And it's actually people in the Jewish issue, first of all, the Jewish community in Palestine, who are adopting Hebrew. And they say, you know what? Why not, through Ottomanism, just like these other groups, place claim over the homeland? And this is why I call it claiming the homeland. And what do they do? They, they, on one hand, they say, we're going to have Hebrew in our schools, but we're also going to have Ottoman Turkish, which is a requirement in, in our schools. So they're really creating a modern Hebrew-speaking community in Palestine. Now, we know that in, by, you know, by 1910, there's three, three newspapers. There's uh, main newspapers in, in Palestine. There were more than others. I mean, most scholars look at Poelats, they look at the labor Zionist newspapers, which most people didn't read. I mean, the mainly read newspapers were Hacherut, which was a Sephardic newspaper, mostly children of people whose parents came from North Africa. Then you have, then you have Hatzfi, which was originally from Eliezer ben Yehuda, was the, was the editor, and, you know, he was sort of seen as the, the father of modern Hebrew. And then uh, we have Moria, which is uh, more of a religious uh, uh, anti-Zionist newspaper. But if you're reading the newspapers, there's not a clear division between Zionists and anti-Zionism during this period. And I think that's key. For them, even the Zionist movement says during this period, we need to forfeit the idea of an independent state, and we need to integrate as an autonomous community in Palestine. So what happens is, is that community really sees themselves as transforming into a modern Ottoman community. Now, this, of course, is challenged by, I would say, other uh, ideologies within them. But the trend is that suddenly you start seeing young people in the Jewish Yeshuv, Ashkenazi and Sephardic, that are saying now we're going, and Hebrew speakers, now we want to fight for the Ottoman army. And we have recruitment among Ottoman Jews that are Zionist, and they're fighting for, they fight in 1911 war with Libya, um, they fight in the uh, Balkan Wars of 1913, and I, I look at Carmi Affinity, but there's a, there's, there's a few others, and you know, they talk about, you know, the Jewish heroism of, 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 of the Maccabees, this, this, this happens, the war was happening in December, um, I believe 1912, and the paper says, you know, we have modern type Maccabees, Ottoman Jewish soldiers fighting. Um, and later on, they go into fight in World War I. So this group of Zionists, what this Ottoman Zionism is being written out, 
<clears throat> now, at the same time in Istanbul, you have a local Jewish community. That's the, the Jewish parliamentarians. Among them are some that are saying, wait a minute, you have five Jewish parliamentarians. The one from Baghdad says, we want, we want nothing to do with this. But the one from Izmir, Nisim Mazliyah, prides himself on the fact that more Muslims voted for him than Jews to get in the parliament. But he says, for me, Zionism is teaching our children Hebrew in the kindergarten. Okay, so the idea was that later on we need to Turkify, we need to adopt the Turkish language and study only Turkish. And remember, their main language was Ladino, it was Judeo-Spanish for the most part. So modernizing for them was teaching their children Hebrew and then later on Turkish. And this resonates well with many of the Ottoman administrators who say are Ottomanizing, they're becoming pro-Ottoman. So what are the Palestinians complaining about? And I think this is where we see the, the debate in the Ottoman parliament is fascinating. But we see that there is a misunderstanding of what Zionism is. You know, is this an independent Jewish state or is this an autonomous homeland? And the, the Jewish groups, the, the, the few Jewish uh, parliament, parliamentarians are able to get support from other people in the parliament to say, no, the Jews don't pose any danger here. Um, and, and, you know, they are slowly um, bringing progress to, they're also bringing progress to Palestine. So what we have here is a, a very, very confused picture. Now, who was not confused of all of them were the Palestinians themselves. And the Palestinians, just to end one more minute, the Palestinians themselves, um, by 1913-14, become desperate. They feel that they're losing their hold over the land. They feel that they're losing their hegemonic position. And we see even people like Albert and Tebbi, who was an anti you know, people write about Albert and Tebbi, that, you know, the head of the Anayan school, as the prototype Ottoman, and as, you know, as the sort of um, the, 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 the Jewish person that spoke Arabic, that was integrated. He ran against uh, Raghav al-Nashashibi um, for, for the city engineer and loses. And what we're seeing is that Palestinians are saying, wait a minute, they're running for office now. And at the same time, you have law students that are going to be coming back from Istanbul. Among them, David Ben-Gurion, who most people didn't know who he was then. I think that should be clear. Most people did not know who David Ben-Gurion was during this period. But if he comes back and others come back and they want to run for parliament, that's going to change the dynamics um, greatly. Um, and for that reason, for that reason, the Palestinians are worried. Um, and they, they feel that the Ottomans are not listening to them. And when they complain and when they write against Zionism, often their newspapers are closed by the Ottoman administration for being anti-Semitic. Now, what we see is that, ironically enough, the Palestinian opposition was very, very clear that it was not anti-Semitic. It was going within the realm of Ottoman law that still said Jews cannot immigrate to Palestine. This is the official status throughout the period. Okay, so they're, they're, they have a really clear argument. At the same time, is you have a group of very anti-Semitic Ottoman parliamentarians that um, actually, even back then, you could say, hindered the, the cause of the Palestinians 
because they were talking about fears of, uh, of Jews taking over the empire and, and, and through their, their banking skills and typical very anti-Semitic anti stuff. The Palestinians were on the side of the government, by the way, throughout this period, um, up until, 19, I think, 1912 elections. So they found themselves on the side that were actually were, were the more pro-Jewish groups. The Palestinians found themselves on the same side. So that dynamic is also very important here. I must say that the picture you just painted is amazing in a sense that it highlights all of the complexities of the debate about Zionism that were obviously taking place in Jerusalem, in Istanbul, and I'm pretty sure also in uh, uh, European cities where Zionism was growing. And um, probably it should be better to say Zionism's plural, various ideas about uh, uh, you know, Jewish identity and obviously the future of Jewish communities. We are towards the end of the interview, and uh, you know this was fascinating and also hard to digest in a sense that there's so much information that we don't know. And I guess listeners are now understanding that you know it's very hard to form opinions, particularly when it comes to current politics related to Jerusalem, without having such a very important background to understand all of the complexities of debates that have been taking place for a century now. Louis, you mentioned at the very beginning of the interview that you like to go to Jerusalem, take your daughter out, and if I understand correctly, your daughter is studying in Jerusalem. If you were, named, if you were to name two places in the city that you would like to visit on the spot right now, whether to sit, grab a coffee, just to admire with you, to have a chat with your daughter. Which one, which places would you choose? So first, if I can add one more sentence before that, I think to conclude also, and about what we know or we don't know about, about late Ottoman Palestine and, and different things. And when we talk about Ottoman Zionism or Zionism during this period or Palestinianism during this period is that both Jews and Palestinians never foresaw that the Ottoman Empire is going to fall in 1917. And even when I talk about Jews placing claim over the homeland or Palestinians placing claim over the homeland, they never envisioned the geographical space without the other. They, that was going to be inherently connected and, 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 and I think that's something, you know, they were going to, this is going to be Jews and Palestinians together. Okay, whatever that means, you know, whatever that means. So I think that's something very, very important and we could connect it back to, to that question you asked. So if I, if, you know, whether if I go with my daughter who's right, who's studying there now, or I go by myself or I meet friends, uh, Bab al Damascus Gate, is one of the places I, I always go. I, I, I'm drawn to that walking from Jaffa Gate through the, through the market um, and then to Bab al I think that's, and I'll, and I'll have a seat, sit there. Then walk through different areas, what I call Palestinian Jerusalem, that is looking less and less like Palestinian Jerusalem, just the, the back streets behind uh, 
Damascus Gate. I remember as a university student going there and and interviewing people for the first time and how exciting it how exciting it was. And I and I still love to go there. And um, oddly enough, when I was in 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 quarantine um, during the coronavirus last year, um, when I was in Jerusalem, I was two weeks in um, a hotel in, in in the east side, actually near Sheikh Jarrah. Um, and I, I could see how the, the ge geographic, the populations are, are changing. And when you walk there, it's nothing like when you walk there 20 years ago in the, in the days of the Orient House and different things. So I would, I would sit down most definitely on, um, on uh, right in that square. The other place, uh, I, I, if I could choose three places, is the rooftops of, of Jerusalem. It just uh, usually at the end of the day, you know, I, I bring friends there and we end up on the rooftops just sitting in just a quiet area and, and looking over the city where you can see um, the Dome of the Rock. It, it would be certainly a place. Um, you can see the wall also in some spots um, and people going and back and, and, and praying. So I think that's a, one of the places I always, always end up at. And the last place is a little corner tea place where I think in the summer I brought a student and a really good friend of mine from from Turkey and we sat for almost three hours in the hot sun drinking a mint tea in this corner um, little tea shop and and that that really um, is is a magnificent place where I just sit and it's a small corner and no tourists are almost there. And you can really think about the day that has been and when, what, what's going to happen later on tomorrow. So those are, those are the places that I usually end up at. This was Louis Fishman, Associate Professor at City University of New York, Brooklyn College, and author of Jews and Palestinians in the Late Ottoman Era. Louis, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Roberto, for having me and for, for allowing me to, to think about these amazing you know it's a chance to answer the, your questions such thought-provoking and, and uh, questions and that that brings out some great feelings thank you for listening to jerusalem unplugged this podcast is currently commercial free there are no ads the only possibility to stay this way is for you to please let your friends, your family, and others who may be interested in listening to Jerusalem Unplugged know about this podcast. Let's increase the audience and let's keep the podcast commercial. Thank you for listening. Until the next one. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 